0: my work is really around a pretty simple question or concern which is i think when people talk about abstract ideas they're actually referring to something very concrete and when i can find a way to address something that's very broad through something specific tangible that's here right there now or right there then um it interests me. It's how I understand abstract ideas, and whether it's in theoretical physics or philosophy. Um, it's getting at something particular. You know, when people start debating about rights or democracy or secrecy or pollution, or I want to know, like, what are you really talking about? What's the specific thing? And uh, the general project that I'm working on, it connects with the book uh, about AI, cybernetics, Deep Learning, uh, is a book about the self, or what we understand by the, the self and how it's changed over time. And I, my sense is that this isn't a universal abstraction that you're going to get at through the widest principles of philosophy, but that different ages have had different concepts of the self organized around what you might broadly think of as Of technology itself whether it's the technology of keeping and distributing secrets through the state security system in the time of Freud when they began censoring letters and Freud began to think of the censoring system in Vienna during World War I as a way of getting at what the mind does or to the point of the AI cybernetics learning project I've been interested in a transformation that occurs in the period around World War II and just after, uh, that Robert Wiener and his uh, gang followers, successors had pursued, was that there was a new kind of picture of the self that was based on very concrete experiences that people had with war technology. And there was a really urgent concern in World War II, and especially towards the beginning of the war, and it looked like the Germans were going to bomb the hell out of England uh, if they could destroy the British fighter jets and bomb their central production and population centers around factories. They thought they could invade England, and it would have been the end of World War II. The United States would have had no foothold. It would have transformed the world. So Norbert Wiener knew he had to get involved, and he began trying to think, how are we going to shoot down these airplanes? How are we going to knock these things out of the sky? And he began to think about learning in a different kind of way. Doing, uh, he said, you know, look, you know, the physicists and I say this having been trained as a physicist, spent my life as a physicist, but Nora Wiener said at the beginning of World War II, the physicists are not gonna save us, not in the short term, not in the blitzkrieg. We need people who understand telecommunications, people who understand this new concept of information, not uh, abstract physics ideas about signal to noise ratios, but really concrete understanding of time series of data, and to make a machine that could learn the way a German bomber pilot was moving his aircraft around in the sky anticipate where they'd be seven or eight seconds in the future and put a shell there and destroy the airplane. That was the problem. You can't shoot it where the airplane is, you have to shoot it where, you know, it's 10,000, 12,000 feet in the sky or higher and you've got to you've got to loft a shell that's going to be where it's going to go. So you know you could you could take a statistical average of all planes, but that doesn't really tell you if the guy is jinking left and what wi- and right and you know in certain patterns and Wiener thought i'll make a machine that learns how that particular pilot moves because obviously you can't ask them they're not going to tell you they're trying to save their own lives. You have to figure out so he made a learning machine, and that learning machine um, that learning machine was really designed to anticipate where the pilot would be. And in the course of working on that project, it never completely succeeded. It, he got to be able to anticipate around two seconds into the future. He needed to do much more, but it taught an incredibly new lesson to people, which is even in the absence of any concrete understanding of the interior life of a, the fighter pilot, just by their exterior actions, you could begin to learn what they do in the future, anticipate it, and in this case, try to kill them. Then that became folded back on how the anti-aircraft operators would work. And then Wiener and his successors after after the war began to think about other actions, about the way we move our hands, proprioceptively fed back motions where we sort of know where our hand is and have it converge to be onto the coffee cup that I wish I had. So that problem and that transformation of starting to think about the self not as some abstract mental categories floating as if in a vacuum, but these concrete problems of figuring out how machines could anticipate was and is for me a transformative moment in our understanding of the human self. So that's what, uh, that's what I want to do with this book. I want to look at this transformation, the kind of blacks, black box anticipatory function of cybernetics that represented what I think of as the fundamental transformation of learning, machine learning, cybernetics, and the self. Uh, so I mean, I mean, my, my biggest concern about... AI is in job displacement, and insofar as it contributes to inequality, that worries me. I'm less worried about nightmarish scenarios of swarms of killer nanobots than I am about uh, an exacerbation of of inequality that would come with things like the elimination of truck drivers as as a profession in the United States and Europe. Recently, we were making a, an exhibit over at the Harvard Art Museums called the Philosophy Chamber about teaching and learning scientific work in the 18th century. And I wanted to uh, do something for that, but the most obvious way was to take some instruments from the—I run a collection of historical scientific instruments that was began with the assembly of instruments by Benjamin Franklin and others in the 18, in the 1770s. Um, and we lent some of these beautiful objects that were used to represent, teach, and probe our understanding of the world. So I thought, well, they, the people who were building on this asked me whether I could write an essay. And I said, no, oh, I'll make a film. I had an idea for a film. And the, the idea for the film was that we would... Uh, The way that people in the 18th century and 17th, 16th century understood things in the end was often through the kind of ancestral form of what now is a debate. Only they were different kinds of things. Not exactly the Oxford debate to entertain and instruct, but something that really was a probe of what people understood and in the mid-18th century there was a new form of this were called a disputation. And this new form of disputation went far beyond the usual syllogistic disputations of earlier times, you know, the syllogism is like, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, and allowed you to use the full gamut of argumentation, of pathetic arguments, of reductio arguments, of analogies, uh, and they were in English, not Latin. So, I thought at first, I'd, well, I'd find some debate, some one of these disputations from overseas, and I thought, well, maybe there's one that survives from Harvard in the 1770s. So it turns out there is. There's one debate that survives completely intact, and it was published, and it was called a forensic dispute on the morality, basically the morality and legality of slavery, and whether it's compatible with what they called natural law. So here is a chance to really look at the exchange, working out an urgent question, slavery. It's July 21st, 1773. It's right on the eve of the American Revolution. It's it's at Harvard, it's a public dispute. People come from far and wide to come and see this. Two graduating seniors. Uh, One of them goes on to become a president of Harvard from 1804 to 1806. He's a mountain of a man. Uh, a bully uh, a Martinet uh, named Ellie Follett Pearson. And he, uh, people are frightened of him, the students are frightened of him, his colleagues are frightened of him. And uh, they called him elephant behind his back. Uh, later on in life, after Jefferson had made much of the new uh, fossils that had been discovered, Jefferson called one of them the megalonics. And uh, they called Pearson megalonics, uh, one of these woolly mammoth. Uh, things. And his opponent was a brilliant young man named Theodore Parsons. They both grew up in Newburyport, just uh, north of Boston, and uh, had known each other since childhood. Uh, And they were graduating. So they were assigned probably the two sides. And we have in detail what they said. And I wrote this into uh, a back and forth that went... uh, more rapidly, but using their words. And then had, hovering in the present of of this, uh, a completely remarkable young woman named Phyllis Wheatley, a famous poet who was enslaved at the age of eight, sold into slavery in Boston, about three miles from Harvard Yard. Uh, And she became a fantastically well-known poet and began writing and publishing. Uh, When she was 14, she learned English Greek, Latin, astronomy, and in 1773 her book came out just as these two boys book. They're all the same age. They're all 21, 22 years old. So I wrote this into a little play and filmed it with uh, some actors from the American Repertory Theater, and I brought in Skip Gates uh, as a collaborator on Direction, because he had written a book about Phyllis Wheatley, the young enslaved poet, and So this is a way of getting at the way, to to try to make very concrete the way, um, a kind of turning point moment in history where they were talking about the enlightenment and what the limits of liberty were and could America have liberty and slavery? Whose liberty would it be? um, With these young kids, you know, they're trying to sort out this question. And that's the kind of thing I like. Uh, that's gonna so I finished that, and it's gonna go up in the Harvard Art Museum, on a big wall. People don't realize there's there are you know two percent of the population of Massachusetts was enslaved in the, the 1760s. But, but again, in, in other ways, I, I've used film as a, a way of getting at concrete specificity.